Uh, thank you, worship team, for leading us uh, before the throne. And I want to continue to worship as we open God's word and uh, let God speak to us uh, through the scriptures. And so last week we began uh, this sermon series through the book of Exodus, a sermon series that we will spend the next number of months uh, working through, be close to next summer uh, by the time we move on uh, from the book of Exodus. And so last week we uh, did a flyover uh, over the book of Exodus and just kind of hitting on major themes uh, from the book, not so much the story itself, but major themes uh, that uh, <clears throat> show up uh, over and over again and throughout the book of Exodus. And I want to just highlight a few of those real quick here as, as really a way of introduction um, to chapter one and moving into uh, the text this morning. But uh, first of all, we talked about the fact that Exodus is a story or it's, it's a part of a much larger story. And, and so we use the illustration, you think of like Lord of the Rings or Star Wars, and you've got multiple volumes, multiple stories that each stand on their own and tell its own story, but they fit very much together in the part of a broader overarching story. And Exodus is the second of five volumes in the Pentateuch. Um, and and so, so while it's part of a larger story, a couple other things that we see in this is that Exodus mirrors our story. I think sometimes we mistakenly think Old Testament, it doesn't really apply to us. And yet what we're going to see over and over and over again in the book of Exodus is, man, that sounds an awful lot like life today. And, and, and that bears out biblical truths that, that are true for us uh, today. And so this mirrors our story because the book of Exodus is all, um, all of it, uh, the book of Exodus and really all of both the Old and New Testament is a part of God's story. This is a part of the story of God unfolding throughout human history, in which we find ourselves a part of, but certainly the people uh, who lived uh, and were a part of the book of Exodus find that to be true as well. And so last week, one of the things we did is we had this little half sheet uh, that we put in your bulletin, and and we're going to refer to this over and over and over again throughout the series. If you weren't here last week, uh, there should be some of these in the lobby that you can grab and stick in your Bible. If you weren't here last week, I'd encourage you... um, To go online, grab that sermon, and and, and grab those major themes and those major ideas and have a better understanding of what's going on in the book of Exodus. Uh, But but one of the things that you see on this sheet that I want to just highlight again here uh, this morning is this this sequences or the sequence of phrases that you see at the bottom of this. And let me just repeat it to you or read it to you if you don't have it in front of you. God has a plan. God's plan is a good plan. And then this is where we tend to get sideways. God's plan rarely works out the way that we think it will. But, but God's plan always works out exactly how God plans it to. And why this is so important is when we think about this plan rarely working out the way that we think it will really is what's going on here in Exodus 1. It's crucial for us to remember that because you come to certain points in the biblical narrative and certainly we come to points in our lives where we're going, God, what are you doing? Why is this happening? And it's surprising to us. This isn't how we thought this was going to play out. And yet it's exactly how God saw this playing out. And so Exodus 1 is surprising, if not downright shocking to the people of Israel. Um, But it's right on course as far as God is concerned. And so what we're going to see this morning as we move into Exodus 1, here's uh, the main idea, <clears throat> main idea for us here uh, this morning, loved ones, is this, that God's people, hear me when I say this, God's people will face persecution from those opposed to the fulfillment of God's plan. Did you hear that? 
God's people will face persecution. You've got to wrap your minds around that. Maybe another way of saying this is that following Jesus is going to cost you something. It might cost you everything. But what you can bank on, what you can guarantee, is that if you're going to follow him, it's going to cost you. And so the question that begs to be asked of each and every one of us is, do I follow Jesus as a consumer? Do I follow Jesus in a manner or a way thinking, what can you give to me? What will you bring to me? What can I get from this? Or am I following Jesus because I am submitted to him as the Lord of all things and I will willingly endure whatever he chooses for me because he is worthy of being followed in that manner. God's people will face persecution from those opposed to the fulfillment of God's plan. I think sometimes, maybe oftentimes, Christians in America, we get sideways on this. Because your existence and my existence with respect to the spiritual reality that has bore out in our nation's history is this massive anomaly, historically and culturally. Because some of us look at this main idea and we're just like, oh, I don't know what I think about that. And I would just ask you, imagine sitting down with a believer from China Or imagine sitting down with a believer from Iran or from Saudi Arabia and be like, hey, what do you think about this? And they would just look at you like, that might be the dumbest thing I've ever heard. Of course I know that. I knew that the moment that I committed to following Jesus. I knew that before I committed to following Jesus, that that would be the reality. God's people will face persecution from those opposed to the fulfillment of God's plan. In Exodus 1, we see this in spades. And so let's come to God's word. Uh, I'm going to read the entirety of Exodus chapter 1, and then we will pray uh, and begin to walk back through the text. I encourage you to follow along as I read this uh, aloud. This is, <clears throat> this is God's word for you and I this morning, loved ones. Exodus 1, 1 and following says this, These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar and Zebulun and Benjamin, Dan and Naphtali, Gad and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died and all his brothers and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. There is a depth to that statement that, that, that betrays so much of what unfolds here in, in verse 9 and following. So this new Pharaoh says to his people in verse 9, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. And so this Pharaoh's insecurity now drives this wicked and heinous behavior that we see in verse 11 and following. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh's store cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service and mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other Pua, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, this is just so disgusting. If it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it's a daughter, she shall live. 
Thank the Lord for verse 17. Uh, But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, why have you done this and let the male children live? And the midwives said to Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. A very dark and depraved reality that's being bore out in Exodus 1. Um, Let's go before the Lord and ask him to give us wisdom to understand this and uh, to apply this to our lives. Why don't you join me as we pray? Lord Jesus, as we come before you this morning, we thank you. God, we thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you that, that you are speaking wisdom and life uh, into our hearts and souls through your scriptures this morning. And we pray uh, that by the power of your spirit, you would come and have the freedom um, to, to speak into our lives. God, for some of us, we need to be encouraged. Others need to be challenged and convicted. Still others um, need to be reminded of truths. Uh, and so many other things that we need this morning that only you can give. And we pray that you would come and have your way amongst us, that you would have the freedom to move and work in and amongst your people here this morning. We got not only for us, as is our custom, we want to pray for another church in the area this morning, praying for Desert Springs and for Ryan Kelly. And I pray for Pastor Ryan as he preaches that uh, you would speak powerfully through him. Uh, God, that you would give him wisdom and insight to lead that group of believers in a way that is honoring and pleasing to you. In the same way that we would long that you would give us wisdom and insight to follow after you. And so, Jesus, come and have your way now. Come and do the work that only you can do and be lifted high here today in and amongst your people. And we pray this in your name, Lord. Amen. All right, well, title the message. Title the message this morning is Blessing Under Persecution, uh, which that title alone may be frustrating to some of you or confusing to some of you, and that's okay. Uh, We're going to work through that. But really what you see here in Exodus 1, let me just talk about uh, the structure of the text briefly, and that will help to frame where we're going with the rest of our time. But in the first seven verses of of the book of Exodus, you have what is almost like a prologue or an introduction uh, to the book. And, and, and you see the, the blessings of God upon his people. And then you get to verse 8 and following, and it is just this dark, uh, depraved, wicked reality that is being bore out upon the people of God. And, and, and no doubt that uh, we, would, we would recognize this as persecution of God's people. And so these two different sections really break out how we're going to walk through this text. And uh, just two main ideas this morning, one around God's blessing and the other around the idea of God's persecution that he allows in the lives of his people. And so let's look at this, uh, the first seven verses. First of all, here's the first uh, main idea that we see in the text this, uh, under the idea of blessing under persecution. And in verses 1 through 7, we see this idea of the blessing of God's people. We see the blessing of God's people. And you might begin to look at the text and you go, okay, um, all I see are a group of names and, and that they're fruitful and increasing and multiplying. I don't see blessing. I don't see promise. Where are you getting that in the text? Good question. That's, by the way, that's always a fair question to ask of anyone. Where are you getting that in the text? And if it's not in the text, you should be suspicious. And it's not explicitly in the text, is it? You don't see the word promise. You don't see blessing. You don't see any of that. And yet, what the first seven verses is doing, with, without apology, 
is it's tapping into the Genesis narrative and account. It's hearkening back to the promise of Abraham. You look at these 12 names. Now, if you didn't read Genesis, it's just like, I don't know, it's just weird names. It's like a list of mostly what not, na- what not to name your child and a couple of like, well, maybe we could go with that. Uh, but most of these names, it's like, I wouldn't touch this if you haven't read Genesis. But if you've read the book of Genesis, you understand some of the things that are going on here. Here's something further that is really helpful to know. This does not show up in our English translations of the book of Exodus, but it's really, really helpful. Most of your translations start Exodus with the word now or these or there were or something along those lines. Actually, when you get into the Hebrew, you know what the first word is? It's a conjunction. It's the word and. Okay, question. Who starts the sentence with the word and? Someone who failed their English class, right? Like no one starts a sentence with the word and. And like you, you, you grammarians, like it's just even uncomfortable. Like they started the book of the Bible with the word and. Just get a red pin out, mark something up. You'll be fine, I promise, okay? But what's important to understand about this is what Moses is doing is he's tapping right back into the Genesis narrative. And... Next volume. And he's playing right into the promises of God. And so notice two things here specifically uh, in verses 1 through 7 around this idea of the blessing of God's promise. First of all, in verses 1 through 6, we're reminded of the faithfulness of God. We're reminded of the faithfulness of God. These names and this brief account summarizing what has happened in the book of Genesis represents an awful lot of God's work here. We're reminded of the fact that God sustained his people through famine. We're reminded of God's promise. If you think back to Genesis 12, God comes to an old couple who has no children, and he says, y'all are going to be huge, and you're going to bless everybody. And it wouldn't have been out of the question for them to go, we would just like a family. We don't care about being huge. Like, a son would be great. And it's only four generations later that we're told that now there's 70 people that represent that family. And that doesn't even include verse 7, which over the next four centuries, the people just explode while they're living in Egypt. But see, we need to be reminded of the faithfulness of God. That's where Moses starts in Exodus. Let me remind you that God is faithful, which is important because when you get to verse 8 and following, it's not going to look very good for the people of God. But he's saying, let me remind you. Let me remind you, loved ones, that God is faithful. And let me do that same thing. Let me remind you that God is faithful. God is faithful. Do you know that? See, we we need to be reminded of God's faithfulness in our lives. We need to take stock in God's providence and his care in our lives because uh, typically, you and I, when it comes down to it, we have poor memories with respect to God's faithfulness. We quickly forget how good God is to us. We quickly forget how God has provided, how he's sustained, how he's walked with, how he's exposed something, how he's finished something, how he saw us through something. We, we, we forget these things. And yet the book of Exodus is a flawless example of this reality that's bore out. Sign after sign, miracle after miracle, all that God does. And what's the people's response like two seconds later? Okay, but why this? Or God, where are you? Or how come? 
It's like, man, you just walked through the ocean on dry land. Can you not be impressed with that for a season? And yet they're not. And in as much as we chuckle or laugh at that, the truth is it's true of you and I today as well. Because we're so quick to forget all that God has done for us, all the ways that he's moved and worked. In fact, here, let's just take a little test right now. So get out a pen. I want you to write it down. Write this down. And if you don't have a pen, you've got to wait for the person next to you, and then you can borrow theirs in a moment. But write it down. It's helpful to write these things down, to be reminded and see them. Here it is. <clears throat> Think back over the last week. Write down one way. Not asking for much, am I? I want you to write down one way that God has been faithful in this past week. One way that he met you in a hard moment. One way that he encouraged you when you were down. One way that he provided for you. One way that he saw you through something, finished something, whatever it is. Write it down. You can be a single word. Doesn't you don't have to write a sentence or a paragraph. Just write a word or a couple words. One way. One way that God was faithful. Now share your pen with the person next to you so they can write something down too. And next week, bring your own pen. <laughs> okay. Now here's the second thing I want you to do. I want you to write down two ways that God was faithful this past month. Two ways. Two ways that God showed up. Two ways that God provided. Two ways that God met you in a difficult moment. Right? Just two ways. Think about that for a minute. Two different ways that God was faithful. That he was true to his word. That he was true to his promise. That he saw you through something. Share your pen and write quickly because we're moving on. Now I want you to stop for a moment. I want you to write down three ways that God has been faithful in the past year. Three ways that God has been faithful in the past year. I'm encouraged by the fact that so many of you are actually writing right now. It'd be discouraging if everyone was just staring at me like, okay, what's next? Three ways that God was faithful in this past year. Now, here, here's what I'm willing to, to, to assume or presume that is beginning to happen inside of you. I'm willing to bet two things are going on. One, that what is on your paper isn't everything that began to come to your mind. I'm willing to bet that as we began to move through this process, that other things began to come out and other things began to come to mind. And it's like, oh yeah, I for, forgot about that. And oh, that was cool when God did that. And see, that's the other side. I'm willing to bet that there are certain things that came to your mind in the last moment that you haven't thought about recently. Maybe not when, with respect to this past week, but the past month and certainly the past year. Oh yeah, I forgot how God did that. Oh, I forgot that he was showing up in that. I forgot that he, he, he was so faithful in the midst of that. We need to be reminded of the faithfulness of God. This is so crucial and so important because when the, when the difficult things come when, when, come, when the hard things come, when the trials show up, that what you and I are pointed back to is the reality that God is in fact faithful. We have poor memories when it comes to God's faithfulness. And I know this, I know this to be true about this because when something happens that's unexpected or that we don't like, uh, typically our first response is that we're worried, we're anxious, we're angry, we're fearful, or we're fretful, which betrays a reality that I don't 
really remember God's constant goodness and faithfulness in my life. Because if I did, it'd be like, well, yeah, I've seen this a hundred times before. It's just another way for God to show up and manifest himself in some new powerful way. And I'm not saying that things aren't hard or difficult or that uh, people aren't going to get sick and die or that we're not going to have struggle or loss. I'm not suggesting that at all. What I'm saying is our ability to look at those things and recognize and realize, yeah, but in the same way that God was faithful there, he will be faithful here and here and here to be reminded of the faithfulness of God. Notice this also, look at verse seven. The blessing of God's promise is that we know that every blessing comes from God. Every blessing that you and I experience, every good thing that is a part of your life or mine, ultimately has come from God. And so in verse 7, the people of Israel are fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied. You might want to circle that word multiplied. You're going to see that showing up uh, later in this chapter as well. That's kind of a key word, a thematic for what's happening here. And you're going to see it multiple times. Um, and, and so that's an important uh, piece to remember. All right. Uh, but they, they, it's showing up in verse 7 how the people are increasing. Um, Here's my question to you. Is Israel doing that or is God doing that? Right, like I understand that at one level, the the people are a part of this. But we would be foolish to assume that God does not have his hand in this, that God is not moving and working in this way. In fact, the Apostle Paul tells the church in Corinth this. He He says, what do you have that you did not receive? I'll ask you that same question. What do you have that you did not receive? Sin? That's about, that's about the only thing you've brought. Okay? When it comes to good things, when it comes to blessings, when it comes to God's kindness, every gift that you and I have, every good thing is given to us by God. Now, did you hear what I said? I didn't say some things. I didn't say most things. When it comes to good things, everything comes from God. Well, wait, 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 wait a second, Mike, wait a second. You don't know how hard I've worked to get here. Okay, who put that work ethic into you? Who put those opportunities in front of you? Who put that education into you? Well, you don't know how, how, much, how much I've learned and studied and pushed and pressed and... And again, I I get it. I'm not saying you haven't worked hard. What I'm saying is everything at the root level of that that has led to that is not something that you and I have done. It is something that God has given to us. And, and, And the truth is any reluctance on our part to acknowledge that simply reveals this desire in us that says, I want to be self-sufficient. It doesn't prove that you are self-sufficient. It just proves that you want to be self-sufficient. And if anything, all it functions as is an indictment that I want to do it outside of God or I don't need God. Can you identify that every single blessing, every good thing, every good gift that has come to you has come from God himself? Can you identify that in your life? Well, does it say that in the Bible? Actually, it does. Just in case you're wondering, James 1 tells us this. It says, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father. So yes, it does say that in the Bible. Verbatim. The blessing of God's promise. We're to be reminded of the faithfulness of God. We know that every blessing comes from God. And it's kind of fun to talk about this stuff, because this stuff is enjoyable and good, and we like it, and... 
Um, but really, this is just the, the, the framework to help us understand what comes next, which is really hard and bitter and dark and depraved. So notice what happens in verse 8 and following. This new king shows up. He doesn't know Joseph. He's super insecure, so he's worried about what the people of Israel are going to do. So it's like, hey, I got an idea. People we're not sure about, and there's more and more of them. Let's anger them and oppress them so that as they continue to grow, surely they'll just follow us. I mean, it's like the dumbest plan ever. And yet how many world leaders throughout history have tried to do this same thing? And it doesn't work. I mean, maybe he didn't have the benefit of all of human history to look back upon, but that's what he begins to do. And so his insecurity moves to hostility and then ultimately to enslavement of the people. But notice what it says in verse 12. But the more they were oppressed, the more God's people were oppressed, the more they multiplied and the more they spread abroad. And even though the Egyptians are in power, they're in dread of the people of Israel. And so they just begin to oppress them even harder as slaves and their lives are bitter with hard work and mortar and brick and work in the field. And if that wasn't bad enough, he just ratchets it up another level. It escalates even further. He's like, let's kill off all the, let's kill the next generation of men. This is attempted genocide is what this is. So he goes to these midwives and he's like, hey, listen, when you show up, if, if they start having a baby, when they're having a baby, if it's a son, we want you to, to, to kill that child. Now, one of the troubling things of, of Exodus 1, or at least uh, the perceived troubling things, is like, well, the midwives lied. Do we know for sure that the midwives lied? We actually don't. It's entirely possible that what they said is true. It's like, yeah, we get the call and they show up and the baby's already out. They really are just not like us. It's entirely possible that that was true. Now, it's also possible that the midwives lied. Um, either way, notice the response in verse 20. God dealt well with the midwives. See, God had favor upon them because he recognized that even if they are lying in this particular instance, that it was justified because the value of life superseded appeasing this tyrant of a pharaoh. Not only did God deal well, with, deal well with the midwives, but the people continued to multiply and grow strong. But that is all happening in the midst of this incredible persecution. And so you have the blessing of God's people, right? Blessing under persecution. We've seen the blessing in verses 1 through 7. Now here's the persecution in verses 8 through 22. And you see this, um, this escalation that happens amongst the people. Now let me make note of four things here with respect to... Um, this second half of the text. And this is where we'll spend the rest of our time. Here's the first thing. Look at verse 8. The persecution of God's people. Uh, it says this, Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. Now in one sense, you have to understand historically, we're four centuries down the road. This isn't like 10 years later and, oh, we forgot about this guy. I mean, we are centuries down the road at this point in the book of Exodus. But this is, this is such a deep statement and there's such a depth to this. Really what Moses is telling us, that in this point in the nation of Israel with respect to Egypt and their, their interaction with each other, that, that there's no remembrance of God's work. There's no history, there's no understanding, there's no relational knowledge. Uh, the, we, we, we don't connect with uh, persons or people in, in that respect. I was trying to think about what would, what would help to capture that sentiment? What would help to capture that feeling? And the only thing that I could come up with that I think we could relate to is when you move to an entirely different area. 
I know many of you aren't from New Mexico originally. I'm not from New Mexico. I'm a transplant. And I can remember showing up here and that feeling of like, man, you don't really know anybody. But even before we moved here, we had met a number of people. I think probably the most um, profound time in my life where that, that sentiment or reality was true was uh, my undergrad was in education. And at the time, Becky was going to college in uh, Chicago and I was in Arizona and my sister lived in Indiana. So I'm like, man, I'll go student teach in Indiana. At least I can be a drive away instead of a flight away uh, from seeing my fiance. And so um, I moved out to central Indiana and student taught at this uh, elementary school in Muncie, Indiana. And I had been there maybe a couple of days. And I know this is going to shock you when I say this, but I am talking with a couple other teachers and I said something sarcastic in response uh, to one of the teachers. Now, if you don't know me, sarcasm is my love language. I'm pretty sure it's my spiritual gift uh, as well. Okay, so not at all surprised that that's what came out. So what happened next is I said it, right? I mean, and it wasn't even, I don't remember what it was about. I don't remember what she was saying. Don't remember what I said. It really wasn't even that bad. But she stood there in silence for probably three seconds and then said nothing, turned around and just walked off. I'm like, oh, that didn't go very well. And so I just let it sit for a few minutes and and then I had to go do what I've done with most of my life, which is go apologize and seek forgiveness. Um, I am professional status. Like if you want to know how to apologize, I'm the guy because I've spent most of my life doing that in some way, shape or form. And so I'm sitting there and I go into a room and I begin to apologize. And then these words come out of my mouth. I said, if you knew me, you'd know that. And I just stopped in that moment for a second and it hit me. No one knows anything about me here. They don't know anything. They don't know what I'm about. I mean, they know my first name and my last name. That's it. They don't know what makes me tick. They don't know what I love. They don't know what bothers me. They don't know that I thought that was funny and not malicious. They don't know anything. Now take that sentiment that most of us have had some experience with and put that on a national level. That's where these people are right now. We don't know, we don't care, and all we see in you is that you're a nuisance and you're a threat to us. There is no remembrance of God's faithfulness. There's no remembrance of God's kindness, which is why it's so important for us to readily keep that in front of us. Right? God, help us that we would be people, that we would be a church and a community and a land that is constantly pointing people back to the reality of God's faithfulness. Because at this point... In the narrative, you've got an entire nation, or at least a nation who is led by an individual, where there's no remembrance of God's faithfulness. And so what you see next is what we already began to talk about, is you see this trajectory of the persecution that shows up for the people. And so let let me just... I want to highlight this. I mean, I've talked a little bit about it, and, and, and we could spend... One of the frustrations about preaching books of the Bible is... Every time you come to a text, you're like, man, I wish we could spend more time talking about this or that. And so there's some things here that I'd love to press into, but um, for the sake of getting through the book in an expedient amount of time, we're not going to do. But, but there's a spiritual reality embedded in what's going on here uh, that I think is really, really important for us to press. Because Pharaoh, in what he is doing, he is moving to a place where he's seeking to do two things with God's people. He wants to enslave them and he wants to kill them. Sound like anybody else you know? I mean, that kind of rings a bell, doesn't it? That's what Satan wants to do. 
That's exactly what Satan wants to do. And Pharaoh really represents and stands in stark contrast to God in that all that God is, Pharaoh is not. And all that Pharaoh is, God is not. And, and we'll see that fleshed out more and more in the coming weeks as we press further and further into the book of Exodus. But where God longs to bring freedom, Pharaoh wants to bring slavery. Where God longs to bring life, Pharaoh looks to bring death. In fact, we have this tagline for our series that God calls us out of slavery and bondage and into relationship with him. It's the antithesis of what Pharaoh wants to do. It's also the antithesis of what Satan wants to do in your life and in mine. In John 8, Jesus says this, he says, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. In Romans 6, Paul tells us that the wages of sin is death. Satan wants to enslave and kill. Now, what Israel needed at this moment is what every person who has ever lived needed. They needed a savior who would free them from their slavery and who would destroy their enemy. Which is exactly what Christ did on the cross. Is that he conquered sin and death. He crushed the serpent's head and he freed us from the bondage of sin that you and I so rightfully uh, fall under. And so you have this trajectory of persecution, which really is highlighting a spiritual reality. And it serves to highlight this truth that only Jesus Christ will save us. Maybe you're sitting here this morning and, and, and this is new to you or you haven't heard much about that or you can't look to a point in time in your life where you've turned from sin and towards Christ. And yet you know all too well what it is to be enslaved to something and in bondage. And our encouragement for you is that you wouldn't walk out of the door today without talking to someone about how you can be freed from sin and freed from that bondage of sin in your life and released and freed through what Christ has done for you. A trajectory of persecution. Notice then this thirdly in verses 8 through 22 is God's blessing and persecution. That might seem like an oxymoron to you. You might look at that and go, what? No, that, how? How does that happen? Well, look at a couple of verses. Look at verse 12. <clears throat> the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and the more they spread abroad. In fact, there's a direct correlation there in verse 12 between oppression and multiplication. Verse 20, so God dealt well with the midwives. On the heels of attempting to murder their children, what happens? And the people, of, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. You have this blessing and persecution amidst the slavery, amidst the attempted murder and genocide. You, you, you have God blessing his people. Now make note, make note that the specific form of blessing, the way that it is manifested here in the text is through children. That's how it's manifested. That's a spiritual truth, loved ones. That's, that's not specific to Exodus 1. That's a spiritual truth that bears out throughout the entirety of the scriptures. Children are a blessing from the Lord. Now, let me nuance that a little bit because you can just say some really foolish, harmful, and hurtful things here that simply are not biblical or true um, for people who struggle through these things. So let me, first of all, say what I'm not suggesting here with this idea that children are a blessing from the Lord. Um, first of all, what I'm not saying is that if you don't have children, you're cursed. The Bible does not teach that. 
God is not a vindictive God. Oh, you want to mess with me? Fine. No kids for you. How's that feel? That's not how God operates. In fact, over and over and over again, we see in the scriptures, some of the most faithful individuals in the scriptures were barren for long stretches and seasons of their life. Abraham and Sarah, 75 years old. Hey, you got, y'all are going to be a great nation. I just want a son. Rachel. How many times did she watch her sister have children while she couldn't have children? How about Hannah? Remember Hannah? First Samuel? Begging and pleading with the Lord. In fact, so adamant is she in her prayers in the temple that, 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 that Eli thinks she's drunk. Now, it also says some things to him about fervent prayer that is kind of troubling and puzzling. There's a number of examples of this in the scriptures, that that's simply not true. So please, please, please don't hear or connect this idea that children are a blessing, that if I don't have children, I'm somehow cursed by God. It's not true. But here's what is true and what we desperately need to hear because you don't hear this anywhere in our society. And what I find to be so incredibly grievous is oftentimes you don't even hear this in the church is that children are a blessing from God. They're not an inconvenience. They're not an imposition, right? They're not a disruption to your goals and they're not an interruption of your life. They are a form of God's kindness and goodness and faithfulness and care to his people. And in a specific sense, in the specific manifestation here, God's blessing to his people, it wasn't health, it wasn't prosperity, it it, it wasn't military victory, it wasn't comfort, it was children. That's what God is blessing his people with here. That's how he's showing up and revealing his kindness amidst persecution. Now, in a specific sense, listen, loved ones, in a specific sense in our lives, what do we do with this? As a parent, I know that children have this incredible ability to drive us insane. (laughs) Am I lying? No. Like like some of the, some of the parents who have their children in the service are just kind of like, I'm not going to say it out loud, but yes, he's telling the truth. I get it. You can't say things, but for the rest of you where your kids aren't in the room, you know exactly what I'm talking about, right? Like that would have been a great place for a hearty amen, just in case you're wondering. But listen, listen, in as much as they have that ability, I got five. I know all too well how they can do that. All right. In as much as that's true. What I don't want us to miss is, is there are probably people sitting in this room. No doubt there are people in our lives that would give anything to be so frustrated and driven crazy by those children. Because up until this point in their life, God has not seen fit to allow that for them. And so maybe for some of you, you need to walk out of here today and you need to get on the phone with your child. You need to sit down with your child or you need to get along with the Lord. And you need to say, God, thank you for this incredible blessing. Yeah, children are one of the greatest means of sanctification in your life. God's not a fool. He knows how we work, right? You get married to expose the reality that you're sinful, and then you have children to expose how deeply corrupted you are by your sin. That's how that works. That's not biblical. That's just my opinion, but you can't disprove it. So um, good luck on that, all right? But God's, God's blessing here is manifested through children. And so in a specific sense, man, God help us. God help us that we would love and value children. Here in a broader sense, let me pull this out a little bit. In a broader sense, what does this mean? Well, this pushes us to the place that as followers of Jesus, 
we can't but value life. We, we have got to be the ones who will stand confidently and firmly for life. And, and, and so, so whether, whether it's, it's, it's racism, whether it's this, uh, what we saw in Nazi Germany, or whether it's what we see in China and one family, one child, or whether it's what we see with Planned Parenthood and we're going to exterminate life and we're going to elevate choice over life, we've got to stand up and say, it's not right. It's not right. I read one of the most disgusting articles last week. And it was how the country of Iceland is on a crusade to eradicate Down syndrome. In fact, I had to get up and walk around for like 15 minutes because I thought I was going to break something in my office. I was so mad. And Ryan can tell you because he came in. He's like, you okay? I'm like, no, I'm mad. See, because we've placed a distinct value. It's like, well, you, because you have this, you're somehow less valuable. That's not biblical. That's what's happening here. Let's kill their sons. And God help us, God help us that we would stand firm and say, no. No. We won't stand for that. God's blessing amidst persecution was children. Don't miss that. That is a profound truth that screams out of Exodus 1. In fact, let me bottom line it this way. Opposition to life is a hatred of God. Opposition to life is a hatred of God. God's blessing of persecution. Here's the final thing. And this is really just kind of by way of conclusion and and helping us to make sense of verses 8 through 22. But God's purpose is in suffering. And so if God really does bless us in the midst of persecution, what, what, what do I do with suffering? How, how do I reconcile what I see to be true in verses 8 through 22 with what I know about God being a good and loving and kind God? Like, what, what, what is God's purposes in suffering? And so let me give you four. We could do far more than four, but let me give you four. And, and let me just say at the outset, let's be honest about hardship. I'm not trying to sugarcoat things like, hey, let's be happy and just be joyful and bounce around like everything's great. That's not what I'm saying. This is awful. Exodus 1 is awful and horrible and wicked and dark. And and just for a moment, imagine you're a 25-year-old woman who's pregnant at this point in time. What should be one of the most joyous events in your life is filled with incredible angst and fear. And you're like, I want a girl, I want a girl, I want a girl, I want a girl, I want a girl. And then let's say you get to the moment of your birth and it's a boy. How awful would that be? Like, okay, what do you do with that? Okay, God's purpose is in suffering. Here's four things. Let's just be honest about hardship. Be honest about the reality of these things. Uh, God's purpose is in suffering. The first is this, is to help us grow. Suffering will cause us to grow in faith. It will cause us to grow in commitment. It will cause us to grow in, in, in our affirmation of Jesus Christ. In fact, look at verse 12. The more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. In fact, that's the same recipe that God uses to grow the church. Hey, you know, y'all are doing okay. Let me just press you a little bit. They explode. Persecution was what fueled the growth of the church. Tertullian, who did not grow up as a believer. In fact, this guy got saved watching Christians getting murdered. 
in places uh, like the Colosseum. And he said, the blood of the martyrs is the seat of the church. And it helps us grow. This is how God grows his church. Paul tells us in Romans 3. Let me just say the first part and let it sink in for a moment. We rejoice in our sufferings. Loved one, when's the last time you rejoiced in any suffering? That's not our typical response. Certainly not our first response. I'm not sure we ever get to that place sometimes. But Paul's saying, we rejoice in our sufferings. Why, Paul? Why would you say that? Well, here's why. Knowing that suffering produces endurance. And endurance produces character. And character produces hope. Hope does not put us to shame, right? It means to talk about the love of Christ. God's purpose in suffering. It's entirely possible. Pastor Ryan put it so well this week. He said this to me. He said, you know, the blessing we might need is persecution. That might be the blessing that you and I need in the church. I mean, I'm not necessarily asking for that. I'm not excited about that. Like, oh, yes, persecution. That'd be great. But if it pushes us towards Jesus... And it causes us to be more committed to him, then by all means, bring it on. It will help us to grow. Secondly, it reveals our need for salvation. It reveals our need for salvation. See, suffering helps us to look for a savior. It's what causes us to cry out to God. Now, you might be saying, well, but why does God have to allow suffering? Like, he could have done that without making it hard. Are you sure about that? If the people of Israel continued to flourish in Egypt, would they have left? I doubt it. And here's why I doubt it, because we actually have other biblical examples of this where they didn't go either. You go to the times where they're taken captive, and it's a small remnant that actually goes back to the land. See, the suffering, what the suffering does, what the hardship does, is it pushes us to the place where we realize that we need to be saved. I think they would have remained in the luxuries of Egypt apart uh, from suffering. They would have just been just fine with that. In fact, I think about our nation and I wonder if the unparalleled prosperity and freedom that we have in our land has blinded us to our true need of salvation. And we've replaced it with some need to be comfortable or entertained or to be happy. You notice it wasn't until they were oppressed that they began to cry out to God. That says something. Thirdly, God's purposes in suffering is it gives us an eye for eternity. See, suffering, suffering reminds us that this is not our home. Suffering reminds us that something better is still to come. Suffering reminds us that we live in a very broken and fractured world, but a day is coming where that will cease. And that we long for that and that we look for that. And can we just be honest? I mean, I get that life in America isn't always easy. But sometimes it just is. And we can get sucked into the rhythms of life. We can get sucked into the normalcy of life. And and we can get really, really comfortable. And we want to start holding on to this more and more and more. And so contrast your life with, oh, I don't know, someone who lives in the Houston area. Now, as tragic as that is, and I'm not making light of that. I'm guessing there's some people in Houston that would love nothing more than for Jesus to come back right now. (laughs) Because in a worldly sense, they've lost everything. And they've been reminded of the fact that this world will ultimately betray us. And it gives us an eye for eternity. Here's the final thing. 
And, and if you walk out of here with anything today, I want you to walk out with this right here. God's purposes in suffering is that they are always, 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 always redemptive. Always. God will never have you suffer for no reason. Oh, hey, I meant to get around and helping you out with that. My bad. That, God's never said that. There's always a purpose for our suffering. I mean, this is the pattern of the cross. Right? Redemption through suffering. Christ suffering for our salvation. That, that God is using it within us. That, that God is working it out for our good and for his glory that Paul tells us in Romans 8. I had a gentleman in our church. <clears throat> this week we were communicating back and forth and, and he's just found himself in this just incredibly difficult place and uh, struggles at work and, and just some other things. And, and so talking about praying for him and, and he, he mentioned a few things specifically that he wanted prayer for, but this one I just found to be so spot on. And he said this, he said, pray for me that I will not seek to avoid the unpleasantness of this time by any method that does not reflect faith in the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. I just wrote back and I said, see, God's doing it. Like he's redeeming that struggle. He's making it profitable and useful and good. In fact, some of you I've, I've sent this video to, and I'm going to play, or I'm going to play an audio portion of this in a moment. But there's, there, there's a group, a group, a musical group guy, a couple of guys called Shane and Shane, and they came out with a song called, Though You Slay Me which isn't popular on most Christian radio stations. I don't know why. Most people don't want to be singing songs about why God would slay us, okay? Uh, it's not hard to figure out why that's the case. In fact, let me read. Here's the lyrics, though, to this song. See, I think in truth we need more songs like this because this is just honest and real. I come, God, I come. I return to the Lord, the one who's broken, the one who's torn me apart. You struck down to bind me up. You say you do it all in love, that I might know you in your suffering. Though you slay me, yet I will praise you. Though you take from me, I will bless your name. Though you ruin me, still I will worship. Sing a song to the one who's all I need. My heart and my flesh may fail. The earth below give way. But with my eyes, with my eyes, I'll see the Lord. Lifted high on that day, behold the lamb that was slain. And I'll know that every tear was worth it all. And a moment is coming where I promise each and every one of us who's in Christ will say those same words. And the song goes on and says, though you slay me, yet I will praise you. Though you take from me, I will bless your name. Though you ruin me, still I will worship. Sing a song to the one who's all I need. Though tonight I'm crying out, let this cup pass from me now. You're still all that I need. You're enough for me. You're enough for me. And then in this one particular version, they grab a couple minute portion of the end of a John Piper sermon. And so in a moment, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have us play that. But as you listen to this, as you listen to this, what I want you to be reminded of is the purposes in God's suffering is that it is always, always, always redemptive. And so you think about that thing in your life right now. You think about that thing where you're like, God can't possibly use this. This can't possibly be good. Nothing could possibly be righteous that could come out of that. And as you think about that, you guys ready up there? All right, you listen to that and you let this truth bear in on us. No video, just audio. Go ahead. Not only is all your affliction momentary, 
that awesome? That is awesome. And what an appropriate conclusion to what we see in Exodus 1. Israel is suffering. It's not meaningless. God's accomplishing his purposes in the same way that you might find yourself today suffering. It is not meaningless, loved one. God is using it. God is doing something with it. God is producing something in you through that. We praise God for that.